His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 18. We've uh, wrapped up the last of verses 1 through 9, and we're ready now to move on to verses 10 through 12. God of spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking for our Father's blessing on our time of teaching. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth and the blessing we have to assemble this morning and receive instruction. Father, we thank you for the absolute blessings of uh, of your creation, of your nature, of your word, of our life. Father, we, uh, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and one that is adrift in uh, uncertainty. And uh, they've rejected absolute truth. And so they have no anchor, they have no stability. I thank you that we have such a blessing to be able to hold to, to, uh, to stand upon the rock. And uh, we just rejoice in this blessing here this morning. Open our eyes to your truth. Feed us from your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. You know, it's hilarious when they look you in the eye and they say there are no absolutes. And that statement they just made, it came from their lips. They just got through making an absolute statement that there are no absolutes. And it's just, it's hilarious if it wasn't sad. All right, Proverbs 18 the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. The verse 12 we've seen repeatedly in uh, previous occasions. is going to come back again and again and again. Uh, several times in the book of Proverbs, we have the contrast between uh, pride and humility. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we've seen that in uh, in different applications as well. But we're talking about security. Verses 10 through 12, it's about security. And are we going to be humble and resting in confidence in the Lord? Then we have all the security in the world. Are we going to be arrogant? And are we going to um, view our wealth as a protection, as the protection for our life. Uh, we can lie to ourselves, we can convince ourselves that we're secure and that uh, with such wealth nothing can touch us, uh, but that's a lie. And uh, no matter how wealthy we are, uh, we are still vulnerable to anything that the plan of God permits in the angelic conflict and uh, and probably more so because we're not walking by faith and let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's our That's our warning there. So let me uh, find our slides where we're doing. We've finished uh, main point one and all the subpoints already. And we're ready now for main point two. Wisdom teaches believers where their security should be grounded. Wisdom teaches believers where their security should be grounded. And uh, it's not in our human effort. It's not in our wisdom. It's not in our uh, wealth. The wise man is not to boast in his wisdom. The rich man is not to boast in his wealth. The strong man is not to boast in his strength, but boast in this, that he knows me, that we know the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is the, the blessings of wisdom. And so uh, as the Word of God teaches this, we learn about protection. We learn about multiple sources for protection because there's more than one in verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And I, I threw out that question Sunday morning asking, do we really uh, have a biblical definition of safety? Or what do we think of when we think of safety? What do we think of when we think of danger? And uh, the, the terms of safety and danger, uh, do they really exist when you're in the will of God? Do we enter, are, we, are we in any danger at all when we're in the will of God? Even if he permits some harm to fall, befall us, uh, it's not a risk, so to speak, when you're in the will of God. You're exactly where you need to be. And uh, the ideas of danger and safety uh, are, are relative expressions that human wisdom orients to. But with divine viewpoint, with divine guidance, when you're in the will of God, you're not in any danger at all. 
you're exactly where He wants you. You're exactly where you need to be. And so that uh, I think that puts things in perspective as well. So now the Lord Himself is a tower, but His name is also a tower. And so there's a, there's a nuance there, and I don't want us to miss that. Because the Lord Himself is a tower. Yahweh is a tower. And we have plenty of uh, verses to point to that. God is a tower. And, uh, but this doesn't say God, it says the name of the Lord. And uh, why is the name of the Lord distinct from the Lord Himself? What is the, uh, the nuance between that? I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to focus on here this morning. The Lord Himself is a tower, but this verse highlights the protective capacity of His very name. His very name. This verse highlights the protective capacity of His very name. And we're going to see when we start surveying these verses and we start seeing the, uh, the emphasis that the name of the Lord has that we find, I think, we find uh, a very valuable principle that we otherwise would overlook if we just gloss over it or we read it too fast or we blow it off as if it's just uh, a throwaway expression. It's not a throwaway expression. You might recall in Colossians, or in, actually I think it was back in the Philippian series when we discussed in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And is that different than just simply rejoicing? And uh, if I greet you in the Lord, is that different from just if I just simply greet you? And all the other things we can do in the Lord. We found a list of 20 things we can do in the Lord. And what does it mean to do something in the Lord? Is that just a throwaway phrase or is there significance to that? Likewise, the name of the Lord. We know that the Lord Himself is a tower, so why uh, make an emphasis on the name of the Lord being a tower? Because the name of the Lord is what we can call upon. The name of the Lord is what we share. The name of the Lord is what we name when we name the name of the Lord. And so this actually transfers uh, things that would otherwise be applicable to God Himself then transfers to us and our applicability and the blessings we have to rest in His name, to call upon His name, to love His name, to glorify in His name, and all the things that we do in the name of the Lord. And so we'll, uh, we'll spend some time with that here today. First of all, though, uh, let's just get the, the basic stuff out of the way, that the Lord Himself is a tower. And we can demonstrate this repeatedly. Uh, 2 Samuel 22 is a good place to start, and then a whole string of places in the Psalms is another good place to go to, especially in the Psalms that actually show both sides of the issue. And uh, in a couple of cases, in uh, Psalm 91 and in Psalm 9, I think it's pretty clear to see in the context that we have both. We have Yahweh as a tower, and we have the, the Shem Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Hashem is the name, and uh, we have the applications there also. But let's start with 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. David spoke the words of this song uh, to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of uh, all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, the, so he's gone through it. He's gone through a lot of danger, a lot of affliction. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. We discussed deliverer as opposed to rescuer in uh, uh, the other day. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior you save me from violence. And uh, how much more clear can you be? That's who the Lord is. That's what God does on our behalf. And, uh, and so, of course, we can take refuge. It's in His very nature to protect us. And David had that confidence. We all can have that confidence, no matter what else we face in life. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And uh, in the rest of this we see. So we can read through the whole thing. Scan down to verse, uh, I'm headed to verse 51. But as you, as you read through this, I recommend you read through this twice. I recommend you read through this for the Davidic application, but also that you read through this for the Messianic anticipation because this is typology for Jesus Christ. This is Messianic in its prophecy. 
that we see things that we can look forward to uh, that will have millennial applications for Jesus. And you're going to notice these things. The um, Verse 44 says, You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. And this crosses the boundary from the Davidic reality to the Messianic anticipation. The people whom I have not known is the people that never existed before in the history of the world until a new people gets created. Then it says, foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. And this is the feigned obedience that will be the uh, characteristic of the millennium. For a thousand years there will be those that are posing, those that are acting as if they love Jesus Christ. And they show up because they have to for the Feast of Trumpets, but in their heart they're not worshiping Jesus Christ. And it's a feigned obedience for that thousand year reign. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. In any event, um, things that uh, David experienced in his life, things that Jesus will experience in the, uh, the millennial kingdom. Uh, verse 48, the God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me, who also brings me out from my enemies, you even lift me up, lift me up above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. When God, when God finally destroys the Gog-Magog rebellion, it's fire that comes down out of heaven. It's not Jesus himself that destroys that rebellion. It's the Father that, uh, that honors his Son in ending the final satanic rebellion. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his King. And David could claim this historically and write this psalm and praise the name of the Lord for rescuing him. Uh, Jesus will be able to claim this prophetically as uh, this applies to him as well. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, to David and his seed forever. The dual fulfillment both with David and the seed of David, uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the Lord himself is a tower, and we, uh, we understand that. Let's look at Psalm, uh, Psalm 9. Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. You didn't need that. Who can't find Psalms? Come on, anybody can find Psalms. Psalm, Psalm 9. And um, another Davidic psalm for the choir director on Muth Laben, whatever that is, um, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And uh, Muth Laben, death of the son. And it's curious, what's the background for this? Because David did lose a son. And there's... Uh, uh, discussion related to Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 possibly being one psalm originally before it got split into two. Anyway, God, uh, David's been through tough things and yet he's still singing. He's still singing. No matter what tough thing he, God brings him through, he sings through it all and, and sings even louder at the end when it's all over and he can look back and, and give God praise. So um, enemies are mentioned in verse 3. Other uh, affliction there, the enemy, in verse 6, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. Even the memory of them has perished. Uh, verse 7, the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And we can look forward to that. If we think it's going to happen before Jesus returns, think again. That if you're looking for a Messiah at the ballot box, think again. There's, uh, there's good politicians and bad politicians, but they're all human. And uh, cursed is the man that trusts in man. We're waiting for the Lord to return and establish perfect government on this earth. Now, verse 9, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And the more you run to this stronghold, the more you realize 
uh, what exactly is a time of trouble? All the time, all day, every day. We realize that there's never a moment that we want to step outside of our tower and think that, hey, we're good, we can handle this, or this is just a little test. I'll, uh, I'll run into that tower in the big test, uh, but it's only, uh, you know, I'll handle the little stuff myself. Why am I going to do that? Am I trying to take glory away from my Lord? He is the one that loves to protect us. And so we have the, uh, the principle there. But now notice, I'll do myself a little favor here by um, giving a, a sneak peek for what does it say in the very next verse? Because yes, the Lord is a stronghold. So in verse 9, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That's the Lord Himself personally. But then beyond that it mentions His name in verse 10. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So we have the Lord as a stronghold in verse 9 and the name of the Lord that's mentioned in verse 10. And those who know your name. See, the name of the Lord is His, the name is His name. But to know Him, to know His name, to call upon His name, to worship, to interact with that name, as it says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. And of course we know that knowing is more than just factual data. You know, when it says a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, see, well, he, obviously he knew who Joseph was. He was the, the richest man in the country. He saved their nation from famine. He was second only to, to the last Pharaoh. And so when that Pharaoh dies and the new Pharaoh comes along, of course he knows who Joseph is. But he does not regard him and esteem him and fellowship with him that's what we're talking about. The, the idea of knowing has intimacy connected with it. That's why marital relations are called knowing when it said Abraham knew Sarah. And, and those idioms speak of that intimacy. And so those who know your name, that we it's more than just uh, you know, factual data about God and His essence box. We know His name and we call upon His name and we rest in His name and we glory in His name. All the things that we can do in His name. And uh, Scripture's pretty clear on this if you pay attention to it. Otherwise you just read too quickly and you blow it off like it's just a throwaway expression. And we, uh, you know, we're quick to do this. It's because humans are intrinsically lazy and we're creatures of habit. But we just, we learn we learn how to um, we just get expressions and, we, and it's, it's church talk. It's, it's, it's Christian talk, right? It's just Bible talk and we, we say, Dear Heavenly Father. And we don't even think about the fact he, that He's in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And that we're interacting across the dimensions. With a, we, just, we just say, and in Jesus' name, Amen. And, and we just, it becomes a formula. It becomes just a rapidly stated phrase and we say it so often and so frequently it becomes thoughtless. And it's just when it becomes thoughtless, uh, where's the value? And we have these phrases like, in the Lord. And we say them so often and they come, they're, they're everywhere in the Scriptures that we, we just become thoughtless and we just gloss over it and lose the impact of, of what these things are dealing with. So those who know your name will put their trust in you. So they're already saved, they're positionally saved. They're going to have experiential salvation now because they're going to walk by faith. They're going to keep expressing faith all day, every day, placing their trust in the name of the Lord, in God Himself, because they know His name. O Lord, You have not forsaken those who seek You. No one ever is disappointed by believing in God. (laughs) There's never a disappointment to say, oh, well, I trusted in God and He let me down. No one who trusts in You will ever be disappointed. That's the promise. All right, well, we'll say more on that when we get to these naming passages. Um, over to Psalm 18. And Psalm 18, parallel to uh, 2 Samuel 22, so we shouldn't be surprised. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that, that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I, have, I love you, O Lord, my strength, 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You read through the rest of this and you're going to notice there's uh, a lot of the language of Jesus in this. There's a lot of uh, things that we can see and uh, envision Jesus on the cross. The cords of death encompass me. Torrents of ungodliness terrify me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Davidic realities and messianic prophecies uh, blended in, in uh, in this beautiful psalm. All right. I don't get uh, lost in this. Yeah. Let's let that go with that. How about Psalm 61? For the choir director on stringed instrument, a psalm of David, hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. How many of the hymns in our hymnal? (laughs) Should we just uh, go ahead and write in David as the author? Because so many of the hymn writers uh, you know, drew either direct quotes or allusions or ideas from the Psalms. So he is the tower, the tower of strength against the enemy. Where else do you want to be? You want to stand there and face the enemy in your own strength? You know, I mean, and, and this, is the, this is the foundation. And, you know, we have armor in the New Testament. So yes, I say keep your armor on, walk in the light as he is in the light. But not only do you want to keep your armor on, but how about you put your armor on and then go get inside that tower? <laughs> you know, get up on the wall. Be on that wall in prayer and be looking out and be in that tower and all these things, the, the, the metaphors that God gives for our position in Christ and, and what, we, uh, what we apply by faith in the angelic conflict. So keep your armor on, get in the tower, get up on the wall in prayer, All of these metaphors should be applied by us all day, every day. There's no reason not to. All right, so that's Psalm 61. There's more here. It's it's a short prayer. It's eight uh, eight verses long. Uh, For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may present him. You know who loving kindness and truth is, right? That's Jesus Christ. Look, grace and truth. Uh, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. I will, so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. And what a joy that when Jesus sits on the throne of David, a resurrected David will sit there as his prince and a resurrected David will rule with Christ on that millennial throne. And what a, what a joy and delight. David has no problem taking the, taking the title prince when it's the greater son of David that's uh, seated on that throne. And then uh, Psalm 91. This one will also show us both sides of the point because the Lord himself and then the name of the Lord. Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What a privilege to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. To to live there, to be occupied with Christ, to be living in the Word of God. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I think that's why they hate in God we trust on our currency, right? (laughs) I mean, here it is. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. 
And so we get to just have this absolute confidence in our daily walk, day by day, generation by generation. It's uh, dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand may fall at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. Are you concerned because you seem to be outnumbered? Forget about it. You're not outnumbered, you're with the Lord. So you're under His wings. It doesn't matter if it's a thousand or ten thousand. I love these verses. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now Satan was familiar with this passage. (laughs) He used this passage when he was tempting Jesus to throw himself off this high place. He's perverting Scripture. The Scripture doesn't say your guardian angel will catch you if you're a knucklehead and jump off a cliff. All right. But this, this passage does say that God preserves those that rest in Him. That we can rest under His wings. That we uh, can stand without fear. They will bear you up in their hands that you not strike your foot against a stone. Notice Satan did not mention you will tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Yeah, the serpent didn't feel uh, you know, comfortable quoting that verse about stomping on serpents. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't that a great scene in the Mel Gibson movie when he stomped on that snake in the anyway, I just I like that. Now, verse 14. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. So again, it's the Lord who's our tower. The Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our, is our protection. But we all, beyond that, we also have reference to the name of the Lord and the protective capacity that His name conveys. The protective capacity that when you invoke His name, and this is not a talisman, this is not an amulet or a good luck charm, this is not a, if you put a necklace around your thing and it's got Yahweh written on it, even in Hebrew letters, it's not an amulet or a, a magic lucky charm. All of those are pagan views of superstition. But the value of naming the name of the Lord, and we see it here. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. You're on a first name basis with God and you call out and you know him and he knows you and this is your tower. This is the protection that we have. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Again, Davidic and Messianic in a uh, marvelous blend. So the Lord himself is a tower, but Proverbs 18.10 highlights the protective capacity of his very name. It says the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous will run into it. Notice that's not how you get saved because they're already righteous before they start running. They're already positionally righteous. The, the, uh, the person that's doing the running in Proverbs 18.10 is already righteous, positionally righteous, saved by grace through faith. But he knows where to run into for his defense, for his security. Now, when you study the name of the Lord and you study different expressions that relate to uh, generally going to have Shem, that's going to be the main term, like Ham, Shem, and Japheth, Shem is the, is the, when it's not being used as a name, it's a noun that means name. All right. So if you name your son name, I think it's because you couldn't agree on what to name him. And so Noah and Mrs. Noah, they were okay with, with Ham and they were okay with Japheth. And then I think they argued about what to, what to Shem, Shem. And they finally just gave up on a name and named him name. And that's my theory anyway. But the Shem means name. And when you call upon Hashem Yahweh, when you call upon the name of the Lord, the Shem of Yahweh, 
then uh, we find that uh, the Scripture is pretty uh, clear on these things. Pretty interesting, I think. And notice Genesis 4, this is the first use for name of the Lord. We have Yahweh, there's earlier uses of Yahweh, but this is the first use of Shem, Hashem Yahweh, the name of the Lord. And it comes once we have three generations in uh, Genesis 4 and verse 26. And so uh, Adam knew his wife again in verse 25, had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, which means appointment. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. And of course they had other sons and daughters as well, and I think at whatever point that the Cain murdered Abel was when Adam and Eve were complete in their procreation. And uh, this appointment was one final son, one additional son, after uh, all the other children that they had. Anyway, God has appointed another offspring in place of Abel, for God killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's curious to me. Why didn't they call upon the name of the Lord prior to that? What was the, uh, what was the, the unique circumstances here? Why didn't Adam and Eve call upon the name of the Lord uh, in their marriage? And why didn't, uh, we know Abel by faith brought a better sacrifice than, doesn't that mean he called upon the name of the Lord? No. This verse says this is when it began. This is when a corporate worship began with three generations calling upon the name of the Lord. And I think in the aftermath of the world's first murder that, uh, that uh, with three generations here, Adamic humanity began to see the value in having a father, son, and son. In other words, a son who becomes a father. Now with three generations corporately calling upon Hashem Yahweh, the name of the Lord. And calling upon the name of the Lord for provision. Calling upon the name of the Lord for protection. Because now they're living in a world with murder. Now they're living in a world with, uh, with a martyrdom of, of, uh, of righteous Abel. And so as a community, while the Canaanite civilization is doing their thing with art and music and science and all that other stuff, uh, now we have Adam and uh, Seth and uh, Enosh now leading a corporate worship for the first time ever. Corporate worship beyond simply family worship. So men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is our introduction to the phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord. Not just knowing it, calling upon it. Calling upon it. Job one twenty one. Mrs. Job thought that he was going to curse God and die. Mrs. Job told him to curse God and die. And all these things that happened to Job, he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped. The name of the Lord is associated with worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. How many times do we quote this? We know this verse. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not just blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You understand why that's different? Well, the significance of the name for the blessings. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is His worship. Giving praise to God's very name. His character, His integrity, His reputation. There's so much that goes into somebody's name. We want to understand that for what it is. And so through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So from Genesis 4 to Job 1, we've got some of the foundational passages in the whole Bible. Some of the earliest, most foundational verses that you can point to in Genesis and in Job that, that precede everything else that you find in the law or the prophets or anything that you find in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The protective capacity of His very name. 
calling upon His name, worshiping His name, blessing His name. Blessing His name. Exodus chapter 3. That name gets defined for Moses. Now we have Yahweh references throughout Genesis. Abraham knew the name of Yahweh, but he didn't know the significance of that name. Abraham obeyed Yahweh. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he knew the name, but he didn't know the significance of that name or the blessings that that name would be as a memorial. That was reserved for Moses. That was reserved as God revealed it to Moses to redeem his people out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 3. This is after his first attempt to uh, rescue the Jewish people. The first attempt that was human effort. The first attempt that was wrong. It was out of the will of God. It was not time yet. The iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete that God had promised that rescue would come in the fourth generation, that he would bring the people out of bondage. But Moses tried to do it himself through human effort, and he pays a price for it. He gets removed from his office. He gets, has to flee as, a, as an alien. And uh, now he's a runaway slave living in Midian. And uh, gets a nagging wife in the, in the bargain. <laughs> All right. But... I guess you can't complain about Zipporah if you're going to get Jethro for a father-in-law. So that's a, that's a blessing. So pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flocks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. When people ask me, how can the lake of fire be eternal destruction and never come to an end? I say, well, have you ever read about the burning bush? You know, you can have a soul, you can have a a resurrected unbeliever that stands at the great white throne and then gets thrown into the lake of fire for eternal burning, for eternal destruction. And he can burn forever and not be consumed. It never ends. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And so many other things you can draw from this too. I think there's patterns here for what happens when an, you know, just God consciousness and positive volition and and when God uh, communicates and and different things that get an unbeliever's attention. I'm not saying Moses is an unbeliever here. I'm just saying you got patterns here when there's an attention getter and then the opportunity to communicate. So we said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then uh, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now this is the context here, the, the commission of Moses to send him as a deliverer, to send him as a, uh, as a Messiah, as a rescuer, a savior. So the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down now to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So if God knows all these things, why bother going to prayer? Why bother calling upon His name? Why crying out because he listens to those cries he responds to those prayers he wants us to to call out upon him our god is a relational god and he communicates therefore come now and i will send you to pharaoh so that you may bring my people the sons of israel out of egypt he selects a servant he selects a uh, an obedient uh, individual to be faithful in his house And Moses is going to be faithful 
Jesus is going to be faithful. We get all the, the typology there that we learned about in the book of Hebrews. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. So he's going to give you a, a miracle, going to give you a sign. There's going to be a wonder. Going to, ooh, look at this. And just like the burning bush was the, ooh, what's that? The, the sign is designed to get the attention. So now you listen to the message that's being communicated. So Moses is going to have a sign so that he will be listened to. That it is I who have sent you and you, shall brought, uh, you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship at this mountain. So his sign is obey me and you're going to see after the fact that this is what I told you to do. <laughs> uh, isn't that great? So now Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And his awareness of this I think is quite telling because he's, he's 20 years away from the last time that he was there, or 40 years, no I'd say he was, yeah, 40, 40, 40 in the, uh, in the uh, he was 40 when he was driven away, now he's 80. It's been 40 years that he's been out of town. But they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am. This is where he reveals the significance of the Aye statement, the I am statement. I am that I am, or who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now the significance of this is huge because it appears here and never again is, is, uh, is the Aye going to be speaking. Never again is the I am going to be spoken. But it's the significance the Aye is the significance of the Yahweh name that they've known even since Abraham. All right, Adam and Eve knew the name of Yahweh, but the Aye reality is what's being spoken of here. The the uh, existent one, the I Am, has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, "Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God, the Elohim of your fathers." the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. And so that memorial name becomes the key. This is what links the Aye with the Yahweh. That they've known the name Yahweh, but they didn't know that it was representative of the Aye, the I Am, self-existent one. So this very name, when you're calling upon the name of the Lord, you're calling upon the one who has always been, the eternal I am. The eternal I am. So that's how it gets introduced there. And he's able to go and show his sign and deliver the people. Exodus 20. You think the name of the Lord is a big deal? It's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Exodus 20 and verse 7, you shall not take Hashem Yahweh, the name of the Lord, your God, your Elohim, in vain. For Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Who names the name of the Lord in vain. And all the scope of what that entails. This is, uh, this is more than just... And in fact, the vulgarities of, of, uh, of abusing God's name, the vulgarities and profanities of, of, of things, that's the least of it. That is actually the least of what it means to take the name of the Lord your vein, to abuse uh, prayer, to abuse uh, your identity in Christ, to abuse, to take the name and then besmirch the name as you bear the name of Christ and yet follow the, your father the devil? What are you doing there? Um, to abuse the name in prayer in terms of a false prayer, in terms of a greedy prayer, in terms of uh, asking that you may spend on your own lusts. Uh, that's naming the name of the Lord in vain. Even um, 
the gimmicky things that people do when they say, well, I can, I can sin and then just confess it right afterwards and get away with it. That's naming the name of the Lord in vain. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. All these manipulations. There is a whole realm, probably a dozen or more applications that come from this one commandment right here. And it centers on Hashem. It centers on the name. So uh, right there with murder, right there with everything else in the Decalogue, the, uh, the uh, severity of things I think is laid out there in that verse. How about when Goliath was taunting Israel? 1 Samuel 17, 45. When Goliath was taunting Israel, you think David understood that the name of the Lord was a mighty tower and that the righteous can run into it? David was probably 10 years old. Certainly he hadn't fathered Solomon yet and Solomon hadn't authored Proverbs yet. But David understood Proverbs 18 and verse 12. (laughs) Okay, or verse 10, I'm sorry. That the name of the Lord is a mighty tower. That the righteous can run into it and be safe. And so Goliath is taunting all of Israel and David uh, is furious. I think he's indignant that nobody has stepped forward yet to deal with this uncircumcised Philistine. That he's taunting the armies of the living God. So um, yeah, verse 45 is the is the verse there, but you can see the uh, the whole episode that leads up to that, and David's indignant that uh, that no one has uh, done this. All the way back in verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the chirpeth, remember that? The reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Not at all concerned with how tall he was, not at all concerned with how long his arms were, not at all concerned with the spear or the shield or any of that. He said, and, and really not concerned with the, uh, the literal foreskin, it's no big deal. The, the fact is, that Philistine is uncircumcised. He is not a part of the covenant nation of Israel. He is not the false gods of the Philistines, Dagon and that whole crowd. They're, uh, they're phonies, they're, they're demons that, that the living God will defend his nation. And that's what it's about for David. And he's just uh, indignant that, that the king hasn't done anything about it. His soldiers haven't done anything about it. And David says, I'm going to do it. And so in verse 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy. That's kind of a, a reddish indication maybe of his, of his uh, hair coloring. Uh, handsome appearance. Really a beautiful appearance, okay? And in some cases, if a, if a man is beautiful or if a youth, if a boy is considered pretty, uh, then that might be an indication of maybe an effeminate thing. But in any event, so the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, those Philistine gods, as I mentioned. And um, the Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. But David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you, Beshem, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. So he's coming in the name of the Lord. And the Lord's the one who fights for him. The Lord fights his battles. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. As far as David's concerned, this is more than just simply an earthly battle. This is a spiritual battle. There's a testimony that's going to resound to the glory of the the God of Israel. There is a God in Israel and David knows his name. And so, uh, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. That's 
maybe the biggest issue there of all is David realizes that the Jewish people have no faith in, in Yahweh, no faith in the Lord. So they need an object lesson. And uh, he goes forth and provides it. <laughs> Alright, well neat story there. Makes me want to reteach the life of David all over again that we did all those years ago. Pastor Cliff is teaching it now at Lost Pines Bible Church and had lunch with him yesterday and like to discuss those things. All right. Now, we've already seen Psalm 9 because we saw that tandem of Psalm 9, 9 and Psalm 9, 10. Uh, Psalm 91 we already saw with um, verses 1 and 2 and took it all the way down to verse 19. We've not yet been to Psalm 118, so let's look at this one next. Psalm 118. And for a context here, oh, there's so much. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His, does He ever run out of chesed? Does He ever run out of grace? He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Oh, let Israel say His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the house of Aaron say His loving kindness is everlasting. Let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. As I said, if you think politics is the answer, think again. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. There's the name of the Lord there in verse 10. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You know, the, the neat thing about having them surround you is you got them right where you want them. <laughs> you know, they think they've got you right where they want you. But no, you've got them right where the Lord wants them. You know, I think of Elisha and his servants and he thought they were surrounded and Elisha said, what are you talking about? We got them surrounded. Open his eyes to see the armies, to see the angels and the chariots of fire and all these things. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. See, the name of the Lord, what a strong uh, power that we have. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting, verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I think that's another expression of Jesus Christ himself at the Father's right hand. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord the Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. And now he's, he's not only is He celebrating past deliverance, He's celebrating answers to prayer, and He's worshiping God, but prophetically now looking forward, just as uh, Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations, looking forward to the, uh, to the kingdom entering through the gates of righteousness. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. What a messianic prophecy. What a picture of the coming Messiah and what he's going to do. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I know that gets quoted a lot. It gets applied to today and every day that we wake up. But literally, and it's a secondary application when we quote it, because the primary application literally is the day of the Lord. It's the day we get to walk into the gates of righteousness and rejoice in, uh, when He comes to be marveled at among all who believe. 
O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Do save, do save, save now. This is where the Aramaic phrase comes in of Hosanna. Hosanna, do save. And the children were singing this on Palm Monday when uh, the Pharisees were trying to execute Jesus. This is what they have to shout for Jesus to come back at second advent. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He can't come back until, the, uh, until Israel as a nation repents, until all Israel says, Hosanna, says, do save, O Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so um, all these blessings, these joys, blessed is the one who comes in what? In the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. When Jesus conquers at Armageddon, it's going to be in the name of the Lord. He's going to, just like David killing Goliath, here's Jesus going forth to battle Antichrist, to battle all the forces of Satan. The victory when he rescues Israel at Armageddon is going to be in the name of the Lord. All right, so we have the joy there. Finally, we'll dismiss with Second Chronicles 7.14. It also gets abused. I'm going to back up. The other side of Job, other side of Ezra, Nehemiah. Get to Second Chronicles. Can we make an application of this? Can this be a secondary application? It can be, but only on a secondary basis. And really under the parameters of Genesis 12, as we are a Gentile nation, our blessings will come as we bless the Jews. Our blessings will not come because we're trying to fulfill 2 Chronicles 7.14. The United States of America is not 2 Chronicles 7.14. Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace, successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So do we have the son of peace on the throne of David? Do we have a a temple on this earth? No, we don't. This is for Israel. This is shadows looking forward to the millennium where the the, the, the prince of peace will be sitting on the throne of David with a rebuilt temple. This is a uh, prophecy that's being given and it's a promise to the Jewish people. I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land or if I send pestilence among my people. In other words, if I'm administering divine discipline upon a redeemed people that should know better. When, uh, when the Jewish people rebelled against the Word of God, God disciplined them. He would put them through five cycles. He would even destroy them as a nation if He had to, and yet bring them back again and again and again. If I do this among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Understand this is Israel, not the church. This is, and certainly not the Gentile nation of uh, the United States or anything else. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne. Well, we know he doesn't. Solomon doesn't. He dies the sin unto death. Tragically, he dies the sin unto death. But this gets fulfilled in Jesus. This gets fulfilled with the greater son of David sitting on the throne of David. All right, well, the Lord Himself is a tower, but this verse highlights the protective capacity of His very name. Father, I thank You for the study. I pray that we would dwell upon it. And every time we encounter now the name of the Lord, every time we encounter Shem Yahweh, 
I pray that we be mindful that the name of the Lord is a uh, is a separate issue related to yourself, but it's your very name, and we want to recognize that for what it is. Thank you for giving us your name. Thank you for calling us by your name. Thank you for giving us the privilege to call upon your name. Thank you, Father, that we can stand before you in Jesus' name and all the blessings that we have in Christ. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.